I'd like to invite you all to turn, please, with me to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. Carrie already read the account from John this morning, but I'd like to read you Matthew's account, and then we'll pray and dive into the scriptures together. Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. And ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. Lord, we've read this story. We've sung this story. And I pray that now as we look more deeply into it, you would reveal your truth to us, that your spirit would take the profound and eternal and perfect truth of the scripture and press it deeply into our hearts and our souls so that we might love you and worship you and trust you. We pray for your spirit to work through the preaching of your word this morning, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So there's a lot of things in this text that we could look at and a lot we could say about the resurrection, but there's two little phrases that I want to focus on in our text this morning, and they both occur in verse 6. As the angel speaks to the women, as they are bewildered and confused and afraid, not understanding what's going on, he explains to them what it is that they are seeing. He says in verse 6, he is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Two little phrases I want to look at this morning. As he said. And then the invitation, come and see. Come and see. The first point I want to make this morning is that we learn something from the resurrection, and it's this. The resurrection demonstrates the faithfulness of God. He is risen as he said. This demonstrates to us the faithfulness of God. Every Sunday when we gather to worship on the day that Jesus rose, we are gathering because of the faithfulness of God. Every year when we gather like this to celebrate Easter, and many of us were here on Friday night for our Good Friday service, we are remembering the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God means that he is fully committed to keeping his promises. These words, as he said, underscore for us something about God himself. It underscores for us his character, that God does not lie, and he does not forget his promises. These words are meant to remind us that the resurrection, although shocking and surprising in a way 
for those who came to the empty tomb was something that they should have known about. Those with ears to hear would have known that this was what God was planning. Jesus himself had foretold it. He had called it. He told them this was going to happen. And so we can look at the words of Christ, but I want to look even further back than the earthly ministry of Jesus because we can even look into the Old Testament and see that the resurrection of Jesus was something planned by God long ago, something that was promised in the word, and therefore something that stands as a testimony to the faithfulness of the one who made those promises. We can look in 1 Corinthians 15 and hear the Apostle Paul's description of the gospel. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Not only was the sacrificial death of Jesus a fulfillment of what the Old Testament promised, but so also was his resurrection. So you ask the question, you know, I can think of several Old Testament passages that talk about his death and his suffering, and even the whole sacrificial system itself points us to the death of Christ. But where does it talk about the resurrection? What is Paul referring to? Well, I think it really starts all the way back in Genesis. We can look back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and we see that after Adam and Eve sinned, God pronounced a curse. He told Adam that work would be hard. He told Eve that childbearing would be painful and that marriage would be difficult for both of them. But he also pronounced a curse on the serpent, the one who had deceived the woman. And this bad news for the serpent was actually good news for mankind. Genesis 3.15, God says to the enemy, to the serpent, I will put enmity Between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The promise of a coming redeemer who would deal with the problem of sin is described as an exchange of wounds. I'm not a very good boxer, but a few of the times I have boxed, I've had the interesting experience of simultaneously landing a punch at the same time as the other guy an exchange of blows. We see in Genesis that the seed of the woman, this offspring, would give a deadly blow to the serpent, and he would receive a wound at the same time. But we see a difference between these two wounds. One wound is deadly, but the other is temporary. Bruises heal. Bruises go away. And bruises don't kill you. If Jesus were to have died and remained in the grave, then a bruised heel would hardly be a good description of what he was to experience. The implication of Genesis 3 is that the seed, the offspring, which we discover to be Jesus in the New Testament, would live to enjoy his victory. We see this this living on to enjoy victory more explicitly in Isaiah chapter 53. In Isaiah 53.10, Speaking of the suffering servant who would die as a sacrifice, it says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Beautiful description here of the cross. 
Then in verse 12, he continues, it says, Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Did you catch some of the language of that prophecy in Isaiah? Words like, he shall see his offspring, that God will prolong his days, that he will have future prosperity and receive a portion of the inheritance, and that he makes, not that he made, but he, he makes in an ongoing, continual sense, intercession for the transgressors. All of this language describes for us not a dead sacrifice, but a living Savior. Though Isaiah describes the servant of the Lord as one who would be crushed, one who pours out his soul to death, one who dies in the place of sinners as a substitutionary sacrifice, yet he lives. He lives. But we see perhaps the most clear promise of resurrection in the Psalms. In Psalm chapter 16, David, the psalmist, writes in verse 10, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Although this psalm is written by David, David is not here simply speaking of himself. He speaks of his descendant, the Messiah. Nowhere else is David or any other person in Scripture ever referred to as the Holy One of God. That title only gets applied to Christ. David here speaks of his future descendant who would come. And he knows that this Messiah, his descendant, will not be left to rot in the grave. That would not be his permanent destiny. David is confident in the resurrection of the Messiah. The New Testament authors read this psalm as pointing us to Jesus Christ. When Peter preached the gospel in Acts chapter 2 to the crowds that were gathered at Jerusalem, he said, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So Peter is saying, listen, Psalm 16 can't be talking just about David. He says, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that, Peter says, we are all witnesses. We could go to Acts chapter 13. We won't read that. But Paul and Barnabas quote the same psalm. And they use the same logic to make the same point that Christ's resurrection from the grave fulfills that poetic prophecy in Psalm 16. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians that Jesus was raised from the dead in accordance with the scriptures, the fulfillment of these scriptures display for us the faithfulness of God, that God has kept his promises, and that Christ has done exactly what he said he would do. But it's not just the word of God in the Old Testament. The very words of Jesus himself in the Gospels informed his followers that he would suffer and die and rise again. We can look just at Several texts in Matthew, just the gospel of Matthew itself. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, Jesus says, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And what happened to Jonah after three days and three nights? Do any of you kids remember? Did he keep getting digested? What happened, Paul? He got spit out. 
He isn't still in the fish, is he? The grave itself would not be able to contain Jesus. He also would come out just like Jonah did. God is fulfilling the Old Testament promises, but Jesus also says, this is what's going to happen to me. In Matthew chapter 16, he tells his disciples, it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day, be raised. Jesus is teaching his disciples that this is his destiny. After the transfiguration, where for a few intense moments, Christ's glory was revealed to Peter and James and John, Jesus told his awestruck friends to keep it to themselves for the moment. In Matthew 17, verse 9, it says, As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Jesus told them this is going to happen. In Matthew 17, verse 22, it says, As they were gathered in Galilee, Jesus said to them, to his disciples, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And it says they were greatly distressed by this. They didn't understand this isn't the kind of Messiah that they were expecting. They thought Jesus would drive out the Romans and set up the kingdom, and they would all be glorified, and they were arguing over who would get to sit where in the throne room. They were distressed by the thought that the Messiah would be put to death. They didn't understand that. That's why Jesus has to keep explaining it to them. Even on the way to Jerusalem in Matthew 20, verse 17, it says, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, this is at Passover, he's going there to die, to lay down his life. It says he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. You can't get much clearer than that, can you? I mean, it's in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. Jesus spells it out for them again and again and again. And he was telling them right up to the hours before his arrest. In Matthew 26, this is after the institution of the Lord's Supper. It says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus says, the shepherd is about to be struck, and you, the sheep, will be scattered. He says, you will all fall away from me tonight. Jesus knew that his friends would abandon him at that most painful moment. But he says, after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. He says, he says your failure in that moment will not be final. I will gather you again to myself and you will follow me again and I will present myself to you after I am raised up. Over and over again, Jesus has foretold his death and his resurrection. His disciples should have known that this is what was coming. Even Jesus' enemies had heard about this prophecy. They, had, they even had an idea that there was this prophecy of resurrection. They had heard what Jesus said in John 2 when he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. You remember, if you've read that story, that the Jews said to him, what in the world are you talking about? It's taken 46 years to build this temple. How will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So because of this, after Jesus was crucified, the religious leaders plotted to make sure, to make sure that no one could spoof the resurrection. 
He wanted to make sure that there was no conspiracy to sort of prop up this idea that Jesus would rise from the dead. So after the day of preparation, this is in Matthew 27, verse 62. It says, The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He's risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Even his enemies had heard this idea that Jesus was going to rise from the grave. Now, jump back into Matthew 28 and put yourself back in this scene. Put yourself in the shoes of these women. They come to the tomb, and and the guards are passed out cold, lying on the ground. They are astonished, and they see this angel sitting on the stone, the stone that's been rolled away. And the angel says to them, he is not here. He is risen as he said. As he said, Jesus rose from the grave as planned by God from the beginning of time, as promised by God in the Garden of Eden, as prophesied by David and Isaiah, as Jesus himself had told to his spiteful enemies and his confused disciples. So when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ on a day like Easter, we are celebrating the faithfulness of God. That he has kept his promises. God is not like some politician who on the campaign trail sells you and tells you all these things he's going to do for you if you'll elect him. And then he gets into office and doesn't do half of them. God is not like a fickle spouse who says, till death do us part, forsaking all others and holding only unto you, so long as we both shall live, but then breaks those vows. No, God keeps his word. He is risen as He said. This tells us something about the character of God, that he is faithful, but it also tells us something about his power, something about his providential power. Providence meaning that God is in control of every detail in the world that he created, that he governs all of it, and none of it is outside of his jurisdiction. You see, God is not only good and has the integrity to do what he says, He is also fully able to do all that he desires, fully able to do all that he has declared. Matthew 26, Jesus told his disciples to watch and to pray. He says, because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That applies to us, doesn't it? How many of you guys have good intentions? How many of us always follow through on those, right? I run once every three months, you know. We all have good intentions. But God, when he is willing, is also fully able. The spirit is willing and the flesh is weak applies to us, but not to the sovereign God who rules and reigns over the universe. God is is not like the general who guarantees victory only to fail. He's not like the cocky athlete who, who, who guarantees a championship ring and then can't follow through, who loses the game. No, God is not like us with our good intentions that we fail to carry out. He is able. He is full of power, and he is able to do what he says he will do. We see this providence and power unpacked for us in Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. Again, we've already referenced this passage once, but Peter preaches in Acts 2.22 saying, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, 
as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That's providence right there. That's providence. He says, this Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. Why? Because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Death has no power over Christ. He is undefeated. The resurrection is an exercise of God's providence and power that demonstrates his absolute, perfect, and glorious faithfulness. The resurrection displays for us the faithfulness of God. He keeps his promises. He is faithful. He is able. And if God is faithful, and I want you to think through this with me for a moment, if he is faithful, if he always does what he says, if he has the power to follow through on his promises, then the implication of that for you and me is that we can trust this God. We can trust in his word. If Jesus rose from the dead, this means it's all true, that every promise is trustworthy, that every truth claim is reliable. And that's exactly what I think the angel is getting at in the next phrase. So verse 6 of chapter 28, he is not here for he has risen as he said. There's the display of God's faithfulness. But what are the next few words? Come and see. Come and see. So the resurrection, number one, displays the faithfulness of God. But number two this morning, the resurrection invites faith in God. The resurrection invites faith in God. These words come and seize an invitation to consider the reality that the tomb is empty. that The grave clothes are there and the face cloth is folded up and set off to the side. He's not there. Come and see. The words of the angel are not wishful thinking. The gospel is not too good to be true. It is real. And the evidence of the empty tomb is presented to them as proof, and they are invited to look and to believe. This invitation to come and see occurs in all the gospel accounts. In Mark chapter 16, the angel says to the women, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Come and see. In Luke chapter 24, verse 36, the disciples are gathered together in a room. And it says, as they were talking about these things, talking about the death of Christ, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. They thought they were seeing a ghost. They had seen him die. They, they knew the tomb had been sealed, but now Jesus was standing before them. Jesus says to them in verse 38, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I, myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. We know that there was one disciple who was missing from that scene. His name was Thomas. In John chapter 20, verse 24, it says, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord but he said to them, unless I see his hands and the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. 
Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Over and over again, we find that the resurrection is not a rumor. The resurrection is not a myth. Even though there are some in places called churches today who are going to stand up and say Jesus didn't really rise again, but the spirit of Jesus is alive in his followers, and and this is a simple object lesson that shows us we can overcome our obstacles. No, friends, that is not what the resurrection is, and that's not what it's about. The resurrection is a concrete reality that is presented before us with evidence and with an invitation to believe. As Jesus says to Thomas, do not disbelieve, but believe. The resurrection displays the faithfulness of God, but it also invites faith. It invites faith in God. Two aspects of this faith. What does it mean to believe? When Jesus says, do not disbelieve, but believe, I think there's two aspects to that. First, the resurrection calls us to believe in who Jesus is, that he is the Son of God. In Romans chapter 1, verse 3, it says, concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, Paul's talking about Jesus Christ, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, there's actually a lot of people who've claimed to be the Messiah. There's a lot of people who've claimed to be God, to be divine. But only one has ever been raised from the dead. Only one truly is the Son of God. The resurrection is God's affirmation and the proof to us that he is who he says he was. There were many who were crucified, but only one rose again. And like Thomas, who was invited by Jesus to touch his scars, we ought to respond, my Lord and my God. Like the centurion in in Mark's gospel, who stood guard at the foot of the cross when he saw Jesus die, he exclaimed, truly, this man was the Son of God. If Jesus was right about rising from the dead, he was also right when he claimed to be the Son of God. And if he's right about that, he's right about everything. The resurrection authenticates the person of Christ, the preaching of Christ, all of it. And we must believe that these things are true. The resurrection challenges us to believe that it's true. To acknowledge it as fact, as history, as literal. We must believe that these things are true. We have to believe specific things about Jesus. That's part of what it means to believe But there's a second aspect to faith, to believing in Jesus, and that's that the resurrection calls us to personally trust in Jesus. This is an invitation not simply to admit the facts, although that's step one, but secondly, to place the full weight of our faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 11, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? You see, the resurrection is not just a happy ending and victory for Jesus. Good for him. He rose from the dead. He doesn't have to stay in the grave. No, the resurrection is good news because it has secured salvation for all who believe in Christ. In his death, he secured forgiveness for our sins. And in his resurrection, he defeats our enemy, death, and opens the door for us to be raised as well. 
In John chapter 3, verse 16, Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It's because of Christ's resurrection that we too can have eternal life. Jesus accomplishes salvation as our representative so that his acceptance before God becomes our acceptance, so that his life becomes our life. Those who trust in Jesus are destined to be raised from the dead and receive glorified bodies like his. Glorified bodies with no arthritis, with no wrinkles, with no limps from that bad hip you've got, with no cancer, with no leukemia, with no Alzheimer's, no death and none of the effects of the curse and the fall. Because Jesus rose again, we too through faith in him, can be raised and resurrected like Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20, it says, In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are fallen asleep. First meaning the first of many. For as by a man came death, right? That's Adam's sin, plunging all of us into sin and death. For as, a man, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. We believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but we trust in that so that we too can experience resurrection. If Jesus was not raised, we have no hope of salvation. It would mean that death is still undefeated, and we are next in line. But because Jesus rose, salvation is sure for all who trust in him. Forgiveness of sin, resurrection, a new body, and eternal life. So Christ invites you today not to place your hand in his side, but to place your faith in his finished work, his death and resurrection. He calls us not to touch his scars, but to trust in his sacrifice, to trust in his power that has triumphed over the grave. He invites us to believe that the same one who was right about rising from the grave is also right, also telling the truth, also going to keep his promise when he tells us he will save all who trust in him. Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, speaking of Jesus, he is able to save to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You see, Christ's resurrection both makes possible and guarantees our resurrection. Those words, come and see, are an invitation. An invitation to come and place your faith in the faithful God, the faithful Savior who rose from the dead. God is Faithful. Easter displays the faithfulness of God to us. Christ is risen as he said. But the resurrection of Christ also invites faith. So I must ask you, do you believe? Do you believe that it happened? Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, the Son of God? And are you trusting in him? Are you placing your faith and your trust in what Jesus has done, not thinking that somehow if you do enough good things and if you're just better than the bad people over there, that maybe those good deeds will outweigh your bad deeds and God will let you into heaven? Because, friends, that's faith in yourself, and that can't work. You have no power over death. You lack the ability to cleanse yourself from sin 
Only Jesus can do that for you. Are you trusting in him? Placing your faith and your confidence in his finished work to save you. If you don't know Christ today, Jesus is speaking to you through his word, inviting you to come and see and believe. Believe. Believe in the gospel. The resurrection declares to us the powerful faithfulness of God, drawing us to worship and invites us to come and see and believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died and rose again for us, drawing us to faith and repentance to receive the glorious gift of salvation that Christ has secured for us. Father in heaven, as we rehearse these truths, looking all across your word to see the promise and the fulfillment of resurrection, we are humbled and amazed and in awe that you would clothe yourself with flesh, become one of us, die in our place, and rise again so that you could lead us to victory. Lord, we worship you and give you glory. There is no one like you. There is no one who can make the claims that you make and follow through. There is no one so faithful and powerful as you are. We praise you and give you glory and worship. And Lord, we thank you that you have, that you have offered yourself to us and called us to yourself to come and trust in Christ. Lord, for those of us who know you this morning, we recognize we can take no credit for our salvation. It all depends on you, and we thank you for drawing us to yourself. And Lord, for any in the room today who do not know you, who have never placed their faith in Jesus Christ, I pray that today they would recognize their sinfulness and that their hearts would be broken, that they would confess those sins before you and turn from those sins in repentance and trust fully and only in Christ. We pray, God, that you would save sinners, that you'd glorify yourself, and that you'd be magnified in our hearts and in our worship. And I pray, Father, that as we look into your word and we remember your invitation to come and see, we would also bear in mind that we now get the joyous privilege to go and tell, to go and tell the world of the faithful Savior who rose from the grave. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.